I V M. Hello and welcome to the Wire Talks. I'm Siddharth Bhatia. Climate change is a harsh reality, and it is getting closer than we think. Coastal cities are in great danger because of rising temperature in the ocean. Mumbai, which is on the Arabian Sea, is going to be particularly going to be hit, like many other cities uh, built on the coast uh, all over the world. A few days ago, the civic authorities, that is the BMC, announced the creation of a climate adaptation and mitigation plan and invited experts to submit ideas and proposals. One of those who attended was Nikhil Anand, a Mumbai boy who is assistant professor in the University of Pennsylvania. Anand is an environmental anthropologist and whose research focuses on cities, infrastructure, state power, and the environment. Four years ago, his award-winning book, Hydraulic City, Water and the Infrastructures of Politics in Mumbai, was published by Duke University Press. He's currently writing a new book, Urban Seas. Now, that should be really interesting because we have a, we are urban and we have the sea here, which, alas, we have misused and abused. Welcome to the Wire Talks, Nikhil Anand. Thanks so much, Siddharth, and thanks for uh, having me, but also this topic uh, to discuss today. Yeah. Tell us about this plan that you discussed. I mean, tell us about the contours, the various parameters, and uh, what does it propose in real terms, in terms of any kind of, is it going to be permanent? Is it going to be time-bound? What is it? Yeah. um, So, um, as you correctly noted uh, at the beginning in our introduction, Climate change is already a reality in Mumbai, and we're already seeing some of its most uh, pernicious effects, constant and exacerbated flooding, but also cyclones that increasingly visit Mumbai every year. Um, In response to these everyday disasters, the BMC uh, has begun a climate mitigation and adaptation planning process, the first events of which happened two weeks ago. These were consultations scheduled on six different themes. These are air quality, transportation, green cover, water and flooding, waste, and buildings and energy, trying to get from people that are working in the city on these issues, what the current scenarios are and what future climate adaptation plans might do. It's very early in the process. The climate adaptation plan should be drafted uh, for public review by the end of October, early November following which, of course, the extent to which it is actually implemented is key, and that remains to be seen. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good start, uh, but did you find that uh, there was a seriousness to the whole thing and that it is the kind of thing that would uh, proceed uh, in a given time? But also, more importantly, any lacuna that you may have noticed and you think that needs to be addressed? Yeah, so I think like in conceptualizing the plan as needing to address both mitigation and adaptation is very important. And I'm pleased to see the BMC actually recognizing mitigation as an important priority. Adaptation of how we live with floods, how we live with the climate change um, is critical, of course. But as important in the process is to make sure we do uh, do our part in reducing the emission of greenhouse gases. Uh, our part as a city, our part of the state and a country. 
And so I was very pleased by the fact that mitigation, the reduced um, emissions of fossil fuels, is part of this planning process. Now, the plan seeks to be very comprehensive. And as I've written about elsewhere, its actual success um, depends on two things. The first is an ability for the city plan to actually realize and recognize in the proposals and in the projects that important environmental aspects of urban living, such as air quality, transportation, and green cover, are not separate sectors, but are deeply intertwined and interrelated, right? So the success of um, air quality, for example, has everything to do with um, not just our transportation choices, but also what kinds of fuel and um, carbon-based fuels we use, right? So the success of the plan um, depends on its ability to integrate across different sectors. And the success of the plan also depends on the ability of the city to actually make this a broad-based process and not just a planning process that is focused on the words of a few experts, right? And so we have intentions to do that. And I think it remains to be seen to what extent that is able to be achieved in the timelines that have been specified. Again, I would say that that's a very heartening aspect of the whole thing. You were obviously one of them. There must have been other experts. But were they taking experts uh, and their opinions on board? Was there a seriousness you found? Yes. So there was a seriousness. The BMC is working with the World Resources Institute, which is an environmental NGO that has had extensive experience in an urban environment. And the World Resources Institute, together with Vatavaran, a Mumbai-based NGO, actually curated a good list of experts that have had significant experience in Mumbai to talk about what their concerns are. At this point, we don't know how many of those concerns are incorporated into the plan because that's being done as we speak. But I was pleased to see the panels that have been curated. And of course, this is just the beginning. The the degree to which that feedback is taken on and taken into the plan by the BMC uh, remains to be seen. You know, early stages, as you point out rightly, but any plan will have to incorporate daily living, serious changes in uh, the way people um, conduct their business, travel. For example, a small thing, and it's already happened, the BMC had, or the government had banned plastic wrapping bags. And that is happened, not to the extent it could, but it has happened. Now, no small shop will give you a plastic bag and uh, they'll give you paper bags or say, get your own uh, bag, cloth bag or something, and the same with supermarkets. So in that sense, something has changed. But anything that comes in the future will have to take on board the needs of, you know, the citizens. And here I say citizens means it could be the upper end of the economic layer or the lower end. Will that, do you think that will come about and will it be something that the citizens can adopt? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what you're pointing to, Siddharth, is the importance of the process to be far-reaching and broad-based. We have known from times past that um, environmental interventions have typically been very um, somewhat handed down, either by the courts or by the government. Um, And oftentimes at great cost, particularly for the city's um, more marginalized residents. And um, some of us have been urging is for this process to be broad-based and consultative uh, as possible, because it is only by making sure that 
the most, the weakest sections of society do not pay the highest costs, as have been done in the past, that we can make sure that this plan actually like helps people as opposed to imposes more restrictions on them. I think the, the second part of what you're describing is also important because the plan at its is a good beginning, but plans can be either just technocratic processes that never get implemented, or they can be ways for reorganizing and reimagining the city that get taken up by its citizens, right? So if the process is right, the plan can do some good things. Um, if it just remains uh, the result of, of experts um, thinking of what's best for the city, we might just have more of the same. What exactly could happen to Bombay, to Mumbai, if people uh, don't pay attention to the idea of climate change? Authorities don't, um, you know, put their, um, you know, put heart and soul and budgets into it and thinking, what's the kind of absolute worst case scenario. I mean, we've been reading, you know, there is a tendency among experts, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to reflect it on you, but uh, also journalists, that uh, they come up with doomsday scenarios. Bombay could be flooded by 2050. You know, they don't mean anything to the average person. They don't mean a thing. What would happen? What's the worst that could happen? Yeah, um, I want to suggest, like, take your question, um, both to, like, not be a doomsday person um, and also take talk about those scenarios as well, right? So already, every day, the, the everyday scenarios of climate change in Mumbai are not catastrophic, but they are significant. More sections of the city are getting flooded more often and more intensely. We are already seeing that now. Um, and of course, we also know, like thinking about the landslide in Malad, which um, people have to bear the costs of that, right? So already climate change's everyday scenarios are already significant and warrant urgent action. There are catastrophic scenarios as well. A very plausible one, even if it seemed very untenable at the time, was described by Amitav Ghosh in The Great Derangement of a cyclone hitting Mumbai of storm surge covering, covering the, the, the southern part of the city and of energy and uh, gas infrastructures not being able to cope with the demand, with the imposition of that crisis, right? So that is definitely a possibility in case a hurricane hits Mumbai, a, a Category 3 or a Category 4 hurricane. Um, we can see storm surges that flood much of the city and disable its power grid. The BMC is already aware of these scenarios. They already put out last year what to do when the hurricane Nisarga strikes Mumbai. But while the city does need to take into account ways for it to strengthen its energy grids, and infrastructure grids, its nuclear power station, uh, research station that is in Mumbai, the everyday scenarios of climate change are already being borne um, by most of the residents today and require urgent action. The other piece, I think, you know, what if Mumbai does not do any mitigation, right? Already you have large sections of the population that suffer from asthma, particularly childhood asthma, right? That is already a cost of over-polluted air that Mumbai is bearing today. The figure for the, the country was about 2 million excess deaths um, on account of air pollution alone, right? So this is already a problem that Mumbai needs to act on today to make the city a place that people can live and not have asthma and not have respiratory diseases in the everyday. We were very focused on the COVID emergency and how it stops people from breathing. 
but the everyday emergency is actually um, as important to take an, take account of. Yeah, in fact, uh, just as a side note, I had uh, interviewed Siddharth Singh, who's written a book on Delhi and the uh, its uh, air pollution uh, problems and the consequences. Mm-hmm. And he pointed this out and all that. And, you know, we in Mumbai, we sit a little comfortably, I may say, even complacently saying, oh, Delhi is terrible and, you know, we will not. But yeah, us, we are there except yeah. for the ocean protecting us. So let's... Now, uh, I'm going to come back to that in a little while about the things that are happening and the reasons that uh, may be causing it already. I wanted to refer to your previous book, which I have, and I have read parts of it because it's something that I'm deeply interested in. As I mentioned to you, I have followed the water trail, not as deeply as you have, but I have followed the water trail. I have gone gone to parts. Everyone says, and I talked to some municipal uh, People, you know, the Mumbai Municipal Water Department is one of the success stories in many ways. They make a profit. It's handed down from the British, but they have continued some of the planning work. But still, two million, an estimated two million could be more. They say it's less. People in the city go without water. What do you think causes that? Because you know, we can't talk about climate change if we don't fulfill the basic needs. I'm, I'm so glad you asked about this, because if, if we're concerned about reducing social vulnerability to climate change, this cannot take place without reducing social vulnerability in the everyday to, to resources like water, food, housing, and so on. So every climate adaptation plan needs to consider the everyday vulnerabilities that people are already subject to. With regard to water, The city, as you mentioned, has done a terrific job with making sure that enough water arrives in the city's um, water treatment plants in Bhandup and Pise. There is no shortage of water in the city. There is enough for every resident to get more than they need. But on account of both explicit and also implicit discriminations, the city does not deliver water to, as you said, approximately 2 million people through licensed connections. There is no reason for this as far as finance, technology, and supplies go, right? There uh, is enough technology, there is enough money in the BMC, and there there is enough water to deliver water to every urban resident. The problem is that the BMC is very focused on denying water connections based on what kinds of housing informal residents live in. And so that's a political question. It's not a technical or environmental question. And the city does need to like address this problem if it is serious about reducing vulnerability, social vulnerability, environmental vulnerability in the city. You know, uh, one of the things I saw was, which you have written about, is the slums in coastal areas in Kalaba and the Bombay Port Trust and many other places, and they are actually on the coast. So uh, will they be, and will others in, uh, in the city be hit who live on the coast or work there, hit more than uh, people uh, further inland? Yeah, I mean, you can certainly say that like storm surges, for example, are for people that are living in the coast, 
you can certainly say that storm surges are more dangerous or high, very high tide uh, events are more dangerous than people living inland. But um, I would venture to say that the water problems, the piped water supply problems of people living in the places you mentioned, Bombay Port Trust, uh, the slum in Kulaba, are actually like a lot more significant in the everyday, right? Like that the tide or the storm comes for three or four days or seven days uh, in a year maybe, but every single day on BPT land um, in Kulaba, you have residents that are like struggling to get enough water to live with, right? So, so in that sense, I would I would like to like follow you into the attention, paying attention to those everyday emergencies around water supply, together with, of course, the, the climate change spectacular event of flooding and so on. But we can't do one without the other uh, in the city um, with the climate adaptation plan. Yeah, I mean, you discovered and I have uh, seen that uh, many of these homes pay exorbitant sums for water provided by private sources and the so-called water mafias. And mm-hmm. it comes in tankers, it comes in var- various ways. And uh, I mean, they're economically hostage. And as some NGOs have shown that it is possible to provide tap, I mean, pipe water to them, it is not as if there's an infrastructure issue. Of course, their legality is, you know, the Mumbai Portress land. Uh, the municipal corporation says nothing to do with us. We have no ownership on it, no claim, et cetera, et cetera. But it is possible to provide them with water. Yes, and I would say that it's both possible technically, but also legally, right? The municipal corporation can, by declaring an area, a slum area, extend water to people living on land that does not um, legally belong to them, whether it belongs to a private agent, a private um, entity or a public agency. Some very good work that is being done in Mumbai by Pani Haksamiti uh, is focused on facilitating applications being made by residents that are living in these settlements. And they've made thousands of applications and only a few have been approved, right? The applications have been made as per the law, as per the procedure, um, as per the documents that are necessary. And yet, so often applications are, they're not even rejected. They're just not approved, right? So uh, there's there's very important work that needs to be done there by the BMC on recognizing the legitimacy of an applicant to receive water uh, in the city. We'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to the Wire Talks. Coming back to your earlier point in which you mentioned, uh, among other things, the landslide in Malad. Now, as you know, with your work and after living here, that's landslides were happening even several years ago. They're on unstable land. If there's heavy rain, they do. Perhaps they have increased in the causes of change. But on the one hand, this is happening and inevitably the price is paid by the truly marginalized communities of the city. But on the other hand, there are infrastructure projects, grand infrastructure projects like the coastal road, which is itself a travesty uh, in terms of uh, damaging the environment on our coast, delicate environment. You are seeing um, this other project, which was abandoned by the British, 
for various reasons. And now again, it's been suddenly revived or filling the sea to create more land between Nariman Point and Cuparate. So on the one hand, there is this, the BMC says this. On the other hand, there are these indiscriminate projects. How seriously can we take their claims? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a really good point. I think like disasters are outcomes of um, infrastructure planning or infrastructure planners not reading the landscape, the political landscape, the social landscape, and the environmental landscape in which these infrastructures are placed, right? So when you build roads in intertidal regions, when you landfill wetlands, when you try and impose uh, walls on rivers, you are creating the conditions for a disaster to occur. So while the BMC is taking important steps in starting a climate adaptation plan, that planning cannot be relegated to the environmental department alone. It has to permeate all different parts of the city administration. As Aditya Thakare had recently said in a speech, every infrastructure project should have a climate lens. What this means is recognizing where these projects are being built. What this means to me is recognizing where these projects are being built, what kinds of environmental and social services will be lost by paving over wetlands, for example, and, and sometimes saying no to projects that will actually do more harm than good. A road that actually increases the likelihood of a city to flood is not going to be an infrastructure project for the city. It's an infrastructure disaster for the city. And the city needs to recognize that a lot of its construction is also a project of destruction. I mean, again, I go back to it. Uh, The coastal road suggests itself. There was no need for it. It's going to service, what, a few thousand, um, a few tens of thousands of cars. And it means nothing. In fact, it's causing harm to fish up communities along the coast. So, and for what? A lot of money is going down, um, I mean, being invested. And the BMC is carrying the burden all on its own. It's not a joint project. So, in that sense, that is particularly troubling that they are gone. It's a done deal. They've gone ahead and uh, now pulling back. And of course, sometimes the political winds blow in that direction. We understand that. But uh, I think the government and the BMC needs to rethink a lot of things in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I've written about uh, the problems with the coastal road as, as setting up the city for a massive natural disaster. But it's not just about creating conditions for disaster, right? It's also about the ways in which the decisions to spend as much for the road coming out of the BMC's own rainy day fund, ironically, will make the city less prepared for rainy days, right? So it's unfortunate with the road, as you said, much of it's been reclaimed already. Much of the intertidal regions have been reclaimed already that the city decided to bring back to life a plan that's over 50 years old when most of the urban plans and urban planners of today will say that's a bad idea, they brought up this project from from the 1960s um, instead of thinking about what will help Mumbai prepare for the 2020s, the 2030s, the 2040s. And the city after city is recognizing in many parts of the world, building highways in coastal areas is actually a bad idea. Um, I wish we had learned from that. 
No, in fact, privileging and prioritizing uh, automobiles and automobiles owners is generally a bad idea because people are shifting to public transport, walking to work, uh, leisure activities and work activities that are local. And um, public, you know, of course, the metro is coming up, but the metro is going to service a lot of people. At the same time, you're privileging uh, cars. So there is something seriously wrong, but I'm glad that they have gone ahead. Now, there is another issue that Mumbai residents see all around them on a daily basis. This is another contradiction. Luxury towers, big towers, often built on very tiny plots of land are coming up. They sell for multi-crore prices. Many of them are lying vacant. I mean, a lot of luxury towers plus a lot of mid-level towers are lying vacant because the pricing is such and uh, nobody can or wants to buy them. Do you think, sometimes do you think, and I mean, I ask you to be candid here, that the city's planners are hostage to builders? Yeah, I mean, this is an old story, right? Which has been true for 200 years, right? Like, so if you look historically, and not much has changed. The city has long been fabricated with the dreams of spectacular profit made out of out of wetlands, right? And so... This, I, this history of the city is a very powerful history of the city that continues to this day, where um, housing investments are made, where city investments are made, are frequently to service uh, the spectacular profits of real estate developers. And, and this is, um, you know, I think the grounds on which we all have to live and act and, and try and make something otherwise. But it is, it is a ground that we, we are inhabiting uh, today as we did in the 1920s and in the 1830s, you know. So it's, it's an old story that I think that is, that is still wow. true today. That, that doesn't take away from the seriousness of the issue. Totally. In 1920, totally. actually, there was not much of you and cry about it, the environment, but on other reasons, corruption, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, even before that, uh, our environmental consciousness was not that deep. But uh, today we are uh, hopefully wiser and uh, we should be... Uh, and there are a lot of agencies and experts who talk about this. It's not that it goes unmentioned, mm-hmm. but somehow it just continues. I mean, I'm glad that the uh, RA project was dropped. Mm-hmm. But who's to say that buildings won't come up there one day? Yeah. And you know, I think you're describing a very interesting process of becoming conscious about the environment that is relatively new, right? When Mumbai was built over the last 300 years, until the last 20 or 30 years, let's say, the idea was that we could basically control our environment to civilize and tame it and build life in it, and it will stay stable, Right. I think the recognition now is that our dramatic transformations of the environment produce a ground that we can no longer trust to be dry, that we can no longer trust will not fall into a sinkhole or a landslide, right? So in some senses, like making sure we're living with the environment is not just about because the environment is like something we should protect, but because not protecting it will make sure that we become vulnerable. 
right? So environmental action or recognizing environmental services and environmental infrastructures in the city are necessary for good urban life. Even if you don't care anything about the environment, you need it um, and you need to like work with it to make sure that you can live. I think we've seen that with the COVID crisis now as well. I like to sometimes fantasize about a scenario where a very tall building, which is sold for crows and crows, gets uh, flooded or worse. And uh, suddenly everyone wakes up to say, hey, you can't have tall buildings. Though that itself may be a fantasy too. <laughs> Not entirely, because, you know, in New York, they're building a very tall building at the edge of Central Park. And they realized uh, that their water pumps are always breaking down. So like the fancy high rise that costs many million dollars does not have water supply to go up a hundred floors. Um, conversely or, or relatedly, um, I remember I grew up in Mumbai in a building that's 11 floors um, since 1975. And I remember one soon where my neighbors on the 12th, 11th floor were like holding their windows from flying away. Now, if we think about the intensified force of cyclone force winds, this is actually a, not an insignificant concern for buildings that are being made really tall with a lot of glass, you know, and I hope that the building codes are taking cyclones and cyclone force winds into account um, when approving these designs. Yeah, well, the blue tarpaulin, which everyone mm-hmm. During the monsoons is a great equalizer because you've seen the memes about putting it mm-hmm. on one of the most famous buildings <laughs> in the city. Well, I hope, I hope from now on, and this is a optimistic hope, quite honestly, uh, because I see some level of thinking and consciousness in the municipality, in the government. I hope that maybe there'll be some course correction in the days to come. But now I'm going to ask you a very provocative question, not because that's what makes journalists, uh, you know, give headlines, not because of that, but I just want to ask you, do you think that Mumbai is doomed? Um, For whom? (laughs) Right? Like, some people are already doomed in Mumbai, right? And some people are able to rise above it, um, literally and metaphorically, right? And so... The work that I've been doing this past few years is recognizing how despite environmental uncertainties, how despite social precarity, people are able to sort of fabricate lives in that uncertainty. And what might we learn from those everyday practices of adapting, let's say, to climate change? Are there ways in which the city can treat people, um, particularly its most marginalized residents, not just as people to hand down orders to or eviction certificates to, but as sources of knowledge and data for how like, the city can be inhabited amidst environmental and social uncertainty, right? So doomed is like a starting point, actually, right? But from doom, how do we make something is what I'm particularly interested in. Well, the reason why I asked is historically, environmental disasters have destroyed cities and civilizations. And yes, Uh, California lives with the fear of earthquakes all the time, Uh, but um, cities can and do die. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't want that to happen. But then you're right that for whom, but the the family living on the 20th floor is breathing the same polluted air as the family on the ground. Mm -hmm. And they may have six air purifiers, but still they are breathing the same air. 
and uh, that has changed up to a point. Yeah. It may well be something that affects everybody eventually. You're totally right. And and I think uh, in this case, uh, you know, with your example of the family that lives with six air purifiers, um, both they um, and also those that are living in a slum settlement do not want to be living in a city with dirty air, right? And so there is a like they experience the dirty air very differently uh, in air-conditioned rooms with air purifiers on the street next to like pollution-emitting vehicles, but they are still both inhabiting a city that is not a nice place to live with dirty air, right? Everyone needs to leave home at some point of time. And so I think in that sense, there are possibilities for like rethinking our shared spaces, even though they're differentially accessed, of what kind of city we want to make. This is not to say I'm like very like rosy-eyed about the future, but we have no option but to like try and rethink cities from the mess we're in, you know, and, and we need to do that urgently. Yeah, so... Very well put and ended because I think um, we we are all invested in this city. There may be people who are bailing out, young people are refusing to come here and work, but the city hums, thrives, and um, always thinks about the future. That's one of the great strengths of Bombay, Mumbai, that it does not uh, look at the past and get depressed. It always thinks of the future. So I think the BMC's initiative is a very welcome one. And uh, hopefully we'll see more such efforts. We'll see this one come to fruition, but we'll also see more efforts at the individual and the institutional level. So thank you, Nikhil. Thank you so much. It's a delightful conversation. I hope to have more <laughs> not on camera or not on audio as well. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. So that was Nikhil Anand, expert on Mumbai's infrastructure, especially water issues, and who has just participated in an online discussion with the municipal corporation's process of bringing in experts to think of a climate adaptation and mitigation plan for the city in the future. And he summed up uh, the issues very well as only academics and passionate observers of the city are concerned, I can do. And um, it's good to know you should contribute more to the city's intellectual process also so that there is some level of understanding and thinking about it. Join us again next week with another guest on The Wire Talks. Till then, it's goodbye from all of us. You can check out this podcast and other interesting ones on the Wire website, the IVM podcast website, app, or wherever else that you get your podcasts. Goodbye from me, Siddharth Bhatia, and the Wire Talks podcast team.